the Drabblecast, episode 373. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week we bring you another trifecta special, three different stories by three different authors with three different narrators, all based on some theme. Our theme this week, Things We Made. We're going to start things off with Useful Objects by Erica Satifka, read by Adam Pratt, followed by Metal and Flesh by Stephen R. Stewart, read by Trendane Sparks, and then closing up with Pop-Ups by Robert Dawson, read by Nick Cam. Useful Objects originally appeared in Nature Futures, Metal and Flesh has not been previously published, and Pop-Ups originally appeared in Nature Futures as well. All music's by Kevin McLeod, licensed by Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. And our stories this week are guest produced by our awesome guest producer, Adam Pratt. So without further ado, we bring you our Things We Made trifecta, with useful objects by Erica Satifka, Metal and Flesh by Stephen R. Stewart, and Pop-Ups by Robert Dawson. Useful Objects by Erika L. Sativka After he passes the age of reason, my brother chooses to become a foundation. Specifically, the foundation of the new state capitol building in Austin, Texas. You've never been to Texas, I say. It was the best opening they had, he replies with a small, sad shrug. And you get weekends off. I'm still working the counter at Jiffy Mart, delaying the inevitable at a pointless task nobody asked me to perform. My friends have all gone off to be fire hydrants, or ATMs, or jackhammers, or five-piece dinette sets. Undifferentiated, the makers call shirkers, like me. I hear them whispering through the thought rays that emanate from their human-powered satellites, saying, Choose. Decide. Of use. And I reply, not yet. A bell jingles, and I look up to see a woman in mid transformation barging into the store. Probably just took her injection after a weakened breast. She's half human, half Vespa, and her chassis scrapes the paint off the doorframe. A little hell? I sigh and maneuver her through. I would have just brought her purchases out to the parking lot if she'd asked me to. What do you need? Motor oil. Oreos. I tuck the items into her saddlebags. No charge, of course. As I close the door behind her, she belches a cloud of exhaust into my face. The transformation complete, she idles at the corner until a passing maker hops aboard. It pops an Oreo into its mouth and speeds off jagged teeth covered in chocolate bits. The makers are alive, but they're not organic. The division between living thing and object doesn't exist for them. And they have a hard time believing that we care about such a piddling thing as keeping our own bodies. To a maker, a job's a job, and we all play our role. Except for us selfish, undifferentiated types. Choose say the voices in my head. Decide. Not yet, I say. Piss off. That keeps the voices down, 
for a little while anyway. The Maker's home is as artificial as they are, a spherical factory orbiting a distant blue sun. No nature, just industry. They arrived in the bodies of the last race they'd conquered, ships that died on contact with our atmosphere. The ships died happy, the Makers told us, knowing they had been of use. I'm not so sure about that. It was a slow invasion massed as a self-improvement regimen. None of my friends really had a job. We were all living on plastic, taking useless classes at the community college to maintain our health insurance, while we pretended our parents' basements were fabulous studio apartments. The lines for the Maker's Employment Center stretched down the sidewalk like an ant trail. Except, I kind of liked the art history class I was enrolled in at the time. I didn't mind living at home. And anyway, injections hurt. The makers tend to their human machines like careful gardeners. They shamble down the human-lined streets on their twisted, insectoid legs. And every day, I feel their alien heat pulsing at me. When they were full-time people, my parents used to telecommute, so it made sense for them to become a house. Which is great in one way, because I don't have to sleep in a stranger's armpit. But it's also bad in another because there isn't any privacy. Sex becomes unthinkable in a house built from your parents' bones. I think that's why my brother's moving so far away. I'll miss you, I say as I watch my brother pack his bags. He's already taken his starter injections, and his words come out thick and gravelly. Stone man, you could come with me. I don't know anyone down there. I say. I don't add that I don't know anyone here either anymore. We don't wear name tags or anything, so you only know your friends when they transform into their part-time human forms. And useful objects don't want to hang around with undifferentiated slackers, like me. I'll write you. You'll still be able to read, won't you? Of course I'll be able to read. I can do anything you can do. Except move. But you get weekends off. Weekends, he says. And alternate Wednesdays. I don't take public transportation anymore. And I don't dare climb in a taxi. Not when I could be entering the cab of my hated fifth grade teacher. Luckily, I only live ten miles from the ocean. I grab my trusty bike, which was never alive, and pedal down to the coast. Choose, the voices say, contribute to be of use. I pedal faster. Because it's November, the ocean is deserted. I take off my shoes, roll up my pant legs, and wade into the brackish water. I choose to be the air, I think. I choose to be the rain on my face and the rocks beneath my feet, the waves crashing over the rocks and the sun beating down on the waves. I wish to disappear into nature, into the earth itself. And that's something the makers can't give us. For these things have no function. 
they are not of use. I stand in the ocean until the pounding rain becomes too much to bear. My teeth chatter, but I just can't bring myself to leave. The rain drowns out the voices and the dark keeps me from seeing the boats in the distance and wondering who they are, if they're anyone at all. Someday, I know I'll have to choose. I, I can't remain undifferentiated forever. Not yet, though. Not yet. I'm not nearly ready yet. Metal and Flesh by Stephen R. Stewart Sato lay on the cement floor of the workshop in a pool of his own blood and tried desperately to get Kuro-4's legs working again. The robot, in turn, tried to deal with the gaping wounds in Sato's smashed leg and pelvis. Go-stones were all over the floor, scattered like black and white drops of rock. Go had been one of the few games Sato and Kuro-4 could play together to pass the time. AIs had trouble with Go, and Sato could hold his own against Kuro-4. Sometimes he even won. The Go stones had rested in two worn wooden bowls on the table by the main hatch. Now they were mixed together on the floor, blood and hydraulic oil oozing around them like a slow river. Sato twisted his torso, torqued the wrench, and finally popped the release that allowed the panel of Kuro-4's lower back to slide open. The effort made Sato's head spin. Outside, the cold Martian winds buffeted the workshop walls, causing the metal to groan. The asteroid strike had heated the alloy, but now the temperature was falling back to normal. The lights overhead dimmed, but stayed on. The wry eyes on Kuro-4's face screen studied Sato's worried face. If the impact left even a third of the solar panels intact, Kuro-4 said, that should be enough to keep life support going. Sato grunted. Sweat poured down his face. If I don't get your legs working, it won't matter. All the suits were in the decom chamber, and the asteroid had torn that room in half. Rescue would take 44 days to arrive, and if Kuro-4 couldn't walk to bring back supplies, Sato wouldn't last half that long. Well, work faster, Kuro-4 said. You're letting me win. I've already managed to repair three of your major blood vessels. Out of how many? Kuro-4 was silent. You've got it easy, Sato said. No pain. On the other hand, the mechanisms you are working on are simple compared to the human body. It repairs itself. What could be simpler? Kuro-4 smiled. They lay on the floor side by side for almost an hour, a yin and yang of metal and flesh. They talked back and forth, each contending their job was harder, that they were winning the competition to see who could fix the other first. Neither admitted how scared they were. Eventually, Sato's hands went numb. Reassembling Kuro-4's servo had been difficult enough when he could feel the pieces. 
Foggy and frustrated, Sato lay back on the floor and struggled to catch his breath. The cement felt soft, like a down pillow. When Sato looked up, Kuro 4 was studying him again. What's that face? Sato asked. What are you thinking about? Back home, AIs aren't recognized as living beings. Sato struggled to sit up. Why are you thinking about that now? The network says the other buildings are breached, which probably means you're the only living human in the complex. If you die, they won't spend money on an evac mission to save me. The dark eyes on Kuro-4's face screen were weary and afraid. I'm in here, Sato. I know I can't prove it, but I'm in here. Sato put a hand on Kuro-4's shoulder. I know you are. They worked in silence. Once, Sato almost fell asleep. A few times he forgot where he was. Finally, Sato said, Fire up your voice recorder. Why? Sato blinked to stay awake. I'm dying, Kuro. Fire it up. A blinking red dot and jagged green line took the place of Kuro-4's face. I lost, Kuro-4 said blankly. I couldn't save you. Hush, Sato said. I'm recording. Sato cleared his throat, summoned the last of his strength, and willed his voice to clear. Then he spoke. Command? Visuals on the fritz, so I'm in audio only. This is Sato, still scraping by. I'm really anxious to see you all. Quick status report. Sato continued until he'd said everything he thought Kuro-4 would need. Kuro-4 listened in silence, the green line on his face screen spiking along with Sato's voice. When the recording was over and Kuro-4's face screen returned to normal, there were tears streaming down his artificial cheeks. Recut that any way you need to, to make, make them think I'm still alive, Sato said. Then they'll, then they'll have to come. Kuro-4 smiled through his tears. I don't know what to say. I'm never going to be able to top this. Sato took Kuro-4's cold metal hand, smiled, and faded away. Pop-Ups by Robert Dawson I was half-starved. My head ached from a long day of selling commonplace vacations to difficult customers. And if I missed the 517 drone bus, it would be an hour till the next one. Without slowing from my clumsy run, I cyber-visualised the timetable. Bus times hovered in front of me in glowing red letters while a calm voice told me that my bus was running four minutes late and that I could catch it at a walk. Gratefully, I cancelled the app and let myself relax. I was out of breath, my shirt was wet with perspiration under my jacket, and my shins hurt from the unaccustomed exercise in office shoes. For a 26-year-old, I was in poor shape. I got to the stop just in time. As the bus slowed to a halt, a sultry and not overdressed brunette materialised in front of me. She leaned provocatively against the bus shelter, hip-jutted, blocking my way onto the bus. Hey there, big boy, she breathed. Want to make yourself irresistible to women? 
Her perfume made my nose tickle and my eyes water. Real perfume would have been illegal in a public place, but they claim that nobody is really allergic to stim plant sensations. All in your mind. Yeah, sure. I stepped through her onto the bus, swiped my card and turned towards the rear. There she was again, standing among the other passengers, toying with a button of her tight blouse. Didn't you hear me, honey? I'm here to tell you how to get any woman you want. Me, for instance. The door chimed and closed. The bus started moving. Those of us who were standing swayed and braced ourselves against the acceleration. She stood motionless in front of me, ignoring the handrail, brazenly flouting Newton's law of motion. Where the hell was her cancel button? So far, only a few maverick advertisers ignored the law outright, but more and more pop-up designers were making the buttons inconspicuous, forcing you to spend time interacting with their creations before you could exorcise them. Last year's ubiquitous red circle X was a wistful memory of more civilized times. There it was, a tiny silver glyph like a piercing stud on a pouting lower lip. I reached out my finger, like choosing a floor in an old-fashioned elevator, but she shook her head. Uh-uh, stud muffin. It doesn't work like that. Even bad girls deserve a goodbye kiss. I muttered something ungentlemanly, leaned forward and pecked at her intangible lips. She vanished. I glanced quickly around, but apparently nobody had noticed. There was still an empty seat beside a white-haired woman wearing jeans and a powder blue sweater. I sat down before I could make myself any more conspicuous. From under the seat came a sinister rattle. A big brown and white snake slithered out and started to weave menacing loops on the floor around my feet. Its back bore the name of the Prime Minister in clear block capitals. I stepped on its head. It vanished with a puff of smoke and the rattle stopped. Ah, that's better, isn't it? Said a soothing, friendly voice that came from everywhere at once and only I could hear. This June, vote for real change. The woman beside me was looking at my foot. Was that the snake, dear? Yes, I admitted. Across the aisle, a thin girl with dreadlocks seemed to be picking something out of thin air. Sometimes I wish I'd never got stimplanted. You know, I actually believe the government's doing an okay job, but stepping on the snake is the only way to get rid of it. Otherwise it follows me around all day and gets louder and louder. And even then it just keeps coming back. Oh, I hate that one. You mean you've got a stimplant too? Oh, sorry, that was rude. I apologise. It is mainly a young people's thing, isn't it? But my son works in Shanghai and my daughter's in Lagos, and it's almost like being in the same room with them. But is it worth the pop-ups? I need my stimplant for my sales job, but otherwise... A tiger, the mascot of a breakfast cereal that I had bought a few times, stalked along the aisle and paused in front of me. Have you had your quinoa puffs today? It asked reproachfully and walked on. She gave me a sympathetic half-smile and nodded. I almost got mine taken out last month, though it would have broken my heart. But I got an ad-blocking patch instead. I thought those didn't work. My son works for Cybella. He gave me a copy of the newest product. That was thoughtful of him, wasn't it? It would have cost me $300 otherwise, and I'm on a fixed income. 
Worth every dime, I thought. Where could I buy it? I think you can download it. I'm not absolutely sure, though, because mine was a present. I brought up my visual display and googled. Sure enough, Cybella, Shanghai. Had proof. She smiled. That's it, dear. She patted my arm, almost too gently to feel. I authorised the payment so eagerly that I made a mistake on my password and had to try it again. After a few seconds, the world around me began to fizz and sparkle as the patch installed. I smelled mint green and tasted furry pentagons. A million ice-cold ball bearings slithered over my skin. When my senses cleared, the seat beside me was empty. I guess I'm slow on the uptake. I actually looked up and down the bus to see where she'd gone. And then, from somewhere under my seat, I heard an all-too-familiar rattle. And that was our trifecta. Hope you enjoyed it. Let's move on now to our 100-character story winner this week by 100-character story savant Nevermore66 with this one here. The safety coffin bell still rang. The sexton sent another apprentice to check the grave. Soon he would run out of them. One hundred character stories. We have a weekly contest in our forums at forums.travelcast.org in the TwitFix section. You might be next week's winner. Give it a shot. It's super easy. We post the winners early on Twitter each week on our Twitter handle at the Travelcast, and we run them on the show. It's open to anybody, and there's an easy hundred character sizing tool right there. So no reason not to. Give it a shot. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Treblecast is brought to you with a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. It means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. We run off the generous support of listeners such as yourself. That means your donations, specifically. Consider donating to the Drabblecast if you liked our show this week. If you go to Drabblecast.org, you'll find support links there off our website. You can donate for $5 a month, $10 a month, or worth a one-time donation. We appreciate whatever you can give. However, if you give at the $10 level, you are automatically subscribed to Drabblecast B-Sides, our premium content subscription feed. And you'll get an email with a username and password that'll give you access to some of the coolest Drabblecast stuff around. I just released a B-Sides episode that was a video podcast review of the top 10 post-apocalyptic short films you can find for free online. And it was pretty fun to do. I think you'll like it. Support the Travelcast with an automatic subscription of only $10 a month. What a difference you make, and you'll get access to cool stuff like that. Otherwise, we're glad you're enjoying the show either way. All right, folks, that's our episode this week. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist, KFH Day. KFH Day is a college student based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. She's definitely human. We appreciate you either way, KFH Day. 
Our program this week was brought to you by Chief Editor Nathan Lee, our art director, Bo Kyer, with additional help from Nikki Drayden, Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you, you only know your friends when they transform into their part-time human forms. Drop him off a few miles out of Bridgedale And we'll see if he keeps his mouth shut We then handed over rutabaga Long to scarlet and dry With another sip of his chin doused with tonic A smile cracked his face on the side A smile cracked his face on the side Then him walked a man with cold clammy hands Wire taped around his lapel And the vampire drawn back was poised and ready Things didn't go well.